I'm Harriet Smith and welcome back to Dietitian Cafe where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. In this episode we'll be talking about the role of a dietitian in the charitable sector. To tie in with the British Heart Foundation's 60th birthday, I'm really delighted to be joined by registered dietitian Victoria Taylor. Victoria is a dietitian with over 20 years of experience working in health and charity sectors. She has a master's degree in food policy and a PG certificate in sports nutrition. Before joining the BHF, she worked for the NHS, first in a hospital and then in public health, where her work included advising school meals, community food projects and weight management programmes to improve people's health. Victoria joined the BHF in 2007, where she now provides expert advice on diet and the links with cardiovascular disease and helps with the development of a range of food and nutrition resources for the charity. She also acts as a media spokesperson on all aspects of food and cardiovascular disease. I'm going to be chatting to Victoria about what it's like to work as a dietitian in the charity sector. We'll talk about how Victoria began working for the BHF and how she contributes to influencing the dietary habits of the population. Victoria also shares her advice for dietitians wanting to work in this area. And together, we hope that you find this a really useful and interesting discussion. So without further ado, it's my great pleasure to welcome you, Victoria, to the Dietitian Cafe. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Particularly on this very hot, summery day. So um, yes. <laughs> very, very <laughs> grateful and hopefully you won't melt during this conversation. <laughs> so first of all, Victoria, could you give us a, a brief overview of what the British Heart Foundation is? Who are they and, and what do they do? Yeah, so we are first and foremost uh, a medical research charity. So uh, we were set up in 1961, so nearly 60 years ago this month. Um, and our mission is really to have a world free from the fear of heart and circulatory diseases. So it's a big, a big mission. Um, and to achieve this, we raise money and we use that money to fund research into cures and treatments. And our aim is to break heartbreak forever. Um, we are the largest independent funder of heart and circulatory disease research in the UK. And we're proud that our advances from our research have saved and improved millions of lives. And since we were founded, um, thanks in part to that research, um, life expectancy has increased by 10 years. Um, so that sounds really great, but we can't stop there. There's still much more to do. And I think we all know as health professionals and also as, as people with you know, relatives and friends that conditions like um, heart disease, stroke, vascular dementia and the risk factors are very prevalent still in our society. And we really need to keep going with our research to address that. Absolutely. And if anything, I, I'm sure that COVID-19 has really shone an importance on people looking after their health. And on that note, I'm keen to hear, has COVID impacted your work at all at the BHF and how so? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> what, what are 16 months we've had? Um, I think the BHF has absolutely, like all other organisations, had to really have a, another look at what it was doing to really respond properly to the situation. Um, right from the start, we could see that we needed to put patient support and information at the forefront of what we do. Um, and we also could see that people with heart and circulatory conditions were among the worst hit by the pandemic. And that, that is something that is still affecting them, not only in terms of their risk of, of COVID and, and what could happen, but also in terms of the treatment and care that was um, sort of stalled during the pandemic. Um, 
the time when people were addressing the crisis situation. So we still know that um, in July, over 242,000 people were waiting for invasive heart procedures, including heart surgery at the end of May, and that's the highest number for May on record. So it's, there's sort of a, a dual um, parts to this that we really need to um, address. And just in terms of the work that we do, you know, the direct effects or helplines or a 400% increase in calls right at the start, that's come down since then, but we're still seeing higher um, call volumes than we were pre-pandemic. Um, and we've tailored our information to respond to the needs of people. So we really have listened to what people are asking us on the helpline and tried to change the way we're providing information. So it's really easy for people to find the information that they're looking for. Um, we've created things like hubs for cardiac rehab so that um, we knew that cardiac rehab was something that was being affected for people during the sort of initial phase of the pandemic. And so offering something on our website that they could find easily and um, look at to help not replace it entirely, obviously you can't do that, but to give them something to keep them going. Um, and the other thing is the insight that we've gathered is also being used by our policy and public affairs teams to help influence government and the health service. So really sort of promoting the, the needs of the population that we're really trying to, to help with our work. And then obviously from a financial perspective, um, I mean, <laughs> all businesses have, have really been impacted um, and obviously we have a huge number of um, shops. We've got a retail side to our charity. Um, and during the lockdowns, all 750 of our shops have had to close. And that's had an impact, obviously, on our income during that time. But also we weren't able to receive donations. So you know, all of that has had um, real impact, as well as things like mass participation events door-to-door -door fundraising, all of those kinds of things have had to sort of stop. Some things we've sort of changed the way we do them, but there's some things that you just can't do it in a different way. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to hear how you've pivoted so much over the past 16 months, and hopefully some good has come out of that, like you said, with the, the um, virtual cardiac rehab, for example. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, and yeah, we're doing some things differently and actually finding that they are better or as good as. Um, there's also have, has been a sort of a more negative impact though in, the, in terms of the income we've received. It means that we've not been able to invest so much in the research. So we've actually had to halve the budget for funding new research from, well normally it would be about 100 million a year and this year it'd be 50 million. And, and that does sort of, when you think about it, that is going to put you know, discoveries at risk in the future or slow, slow research down. And that's really our reason for being. And so, um, yeah, that is a kind of a, a downside. Yeah, yes, very tough for, indeed for any charity, I imagine, at this current time. So it's actually the BHF's 60th birthday this year, is that correct? That's right, yes, 60 years young. Gosh, is there anything that you're, you're doing as a charity to celebrate? Um, we are really trying to celebrate all of the research that we've done um, and all that that's achieved for people who are affected by heart and circulatory diseases. And we also want to say thank you because it's really the people that make it happen. So whether that's staff, volunteers, researchers, supporters of the BHF, they've all had a part to play in making that work possible. Um, 
so it's sort of yeah two sides again celebrating and saying thank you but then um we're also trying to showcase some of the research that we've done that's been quite groundbreaking big discoveries and so on so on our website we've got some stories about the research the researchers and also the people that have benefited from the research we've got a live and ticking event that anybody can um, attend where we'll be hearing from our professors and about the life-saving discoveries that they've made. And then we've also got um, BHF Team 60 who are sort of across the country doing kind of fun activities to help raise even more funds for our research. Amazing. And if you do want to link to any of those um, the events that you talked about in the show notes, and then we'd love to do that. And hopefully some people listening may be able to get involved and help to support you. Yeah, brilliant. And things like the live and ticking, you can actually listen to later on. So if you can't make the date that it's on, it'll still be there. And also a great source of CPD, I might add, for dietitians listening. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's let's move on to a bit more about your role as a dietitian at the BHF. So first of all, how did you, um, you know, transfer to working in the charitable sector? Can you tell us a bit about your journey? Yes. So it, it actually started when I was very young. So I was a very sort of oddly focused um, teenager in that I decided I wanted to be wanted to be a nutritionist or a dietitian when I before I'd done GCSEs I saw something in our careers room and that was that was it I knew I loved food and was interested in cooking and it seemed to kind of yeah sort of give me everything I, I wanted from a career um, I don't know how to work that out so young um, but anyway then um, we had to do work experience and um my school didn't really know what to do with me. So um, they, they knew it was something to do with food, but they couldn't really work out what exactly. And they'd never had anybody who wanted to be a dietitian before. And um, so the, the work experience they got for me was waitressing in a cafe, um, which wasn't quite what I, I wanted. So I looked at all of the different food products in our house. And if there was an address on the back and it was uh, somewhere that, you know, was reasonably local to where I lived, I wrote to them and um, asked them if they would give me work experience. And um, my dad had diabetes. And so he was um, he subscribed to what was Balance magazine then. So I wrote to them as well and some other magazines that had food pages and they wrote back and they offered me work experience. So actually, it was the first interaction I had with the dietitian was in a charity. And I had a really good time there. They were really, really good to me. And, um, and that was great. And then I um, went back. The advice they gave me was be a dietitian, because if you get that qualification, it means you can do everything. Whereas if you if you have the nutrition, but not the dietetics, or if you do sort of you know, a home economist route with food stylist, I suppose, now recipe developer, you can't, you know, there's just, no, there's more jobs open to you basically. And that proved to be really good advice. So I decided to definitely do dietetics and um, yeah, and then went down the usual route that people do, went to university and, and did my clinical placement. And then um, I worked in a hospital for about three years and um, the, there was a um, health promotion event in the local area and they asked the department if they would like to be part of it. So we had a stand there and I did it and I organised it. And, you know, I loved it. I loved kind of planning out and talking to people and, you know, all the rest of it. 
And so then a job came up in uh, Croydon as a health promotion dietitian, and I thought, brilliant, you know, this is perfect. And so I applied for that and I, I got that job. And I really enjoyed it, it's sort of a bit of everything. Um, so I was doing everything from, you know, talking to the Women's Institute to running a weight management group. We had community fruit and vegetable projects. Um, there were infant feeding guidelines. Um, and then also as time went on, we started to look at things like a healthy eating strategy. Obesity became more of a, um, more of an issue that there was more kind of funding and interest in, I suppose. And things like the school meals guidelines came in. It was like the time when Jamie Oliver was really um, prolific around um, school meals. The National School Fruit Scheme came in and I was kind of involved in coordinating all of those. And so I started to become more interested in that kind of policy strategy side of work and seeing that these sort of national efforts could actually make quite a direct impact on what people were eating and that perhaps that was where I could have more of an impact in terms of actually moving things forward than, you know, going around people one by one or to an individual community group or whatever. So, so it was taking a more strategic approach to the work that I was doing. So I got more interested in, in the policy side of things and um, I had really supportive managers and they encouraged me to do masters in food policy at City University. And so there I learned a lot more about policy and about the different levels and levers and all sorts of things. It was a really, um, really interesting masters. Difficult because I was working full time at the same time. But um, yeah, it really just increased my enthusiasm for the, this, that area of work. So I finished that. And, and then I think, well, anyone who's sort of done that kind of intensive study, you know, you finish and you think, did I do all of that for nothing, you know? So I then started thinking, well, you know, what is it I want to do? And then I thought, well, I'm working at borough level, like, is this another way I could, could I work at a national level? So I started to just keep my eye out really for, for jobs like that. And one came up at the BHF and I knew them because, you know, they are a well-known brand and they are, at the time, they did a campaign for schools called Food for Thought. And there is a sort of what's now, I think, quite iconic image of a girl drinking oil straight out of a bottle. And they'd had that up in billboards in the, my local area. And so I knew them from that, you know, it just seemed quite an exciting place to work. And, um, and it had that national side. And when I got job description, I would be working with the policy team or food policy. It just seemed like a perfect fit at the time. So I applied for that job and I got it. And you haven't looked back. Here I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fascinating to hear how it's, you've kind of ended up where you are today, right from the beginning of your journey back at school, doing your work experience and um, yeah. Even looking at you now, you're smiling, you're radiating. I really get the sense that you really do love your job and this journey that you've taken. So it's wonderful to hear. Yeah, it's um, it's worked out quite well, I think, in terms of, you know, 
I mean, if I'd wanted to be an astronaut when I was 14, I think things might have worked out differently. But um, yeah, it's good. I mean, you've, you've been there for about, is it 16 years? Correct me I'm trying to think. I started in 2007 in August. So it's coming up for some kind of anniversary. So yeah, Gosh. I lost count. So they must be doing something right to catch yeah, up that time. It is, I always say it is a lovely place to work, I have to say. So I'd love to hear more about what your roles are as nutrition lead at the BHF. So I know when we spoke before, you mentioned you get involved in lots of different aspects from policy to writing to recipe development. Can you tell us a bit more about some of the exciting projects you're involved in? Yeah, so I think one of the things that has kept me interested for so long is that it changes all the time um, and there is a wide variety of different things that we get involved in. So I sit within the clinical team. So it's predominantly nurses. And then there's me and uh, one other dietitian, Tracy, who works part-time. So it's quite a small nutrition team. Um, and whereas other teams, I suppose, produce things themselves, our, our role is more of a consultative role so we feed into different projects which is brilliant because I'm quite nosy so um you get a sort of a, you get fingers in pies all over, all across the organization so the majority of what we do is what we call sign off so all across the organization there are um teams producing work whether that's a fundraising piece, whether that's booklets, information for the website, it could be there's a campaign that they're putting out. Anything that goes out with medical or nutritional content has to come through the clinical team for sign off. So we will review any content. So personally, I'll review any content that has any food or nutrition information in it to make sure that it's accurate and consistent with our policies on nutrition. But we will also sit on, so say there's a campaign or you know, sort of a larger piece of work, we would also be part of the project team. So you'd be there from the beginning to kind of advise on the direction of the project and um, making sure that it's not going to go down a route that would be inappropriate or inaccurate. Um, so things that we do, so probably the main areas in sign-off, we work very closely with the content team, as you can imagine. So all of the booklets that the BHF produces on healthy eating, um, weight, um, the different risk factors, as well as the Heart Matters magazine we would be involved in. That sort of takes up quite a large amount of time. Um, and then there are other teams that we would have quite a key role with. So policy is one of the teams I work very closely with. So that would be things like helping them to develop our position on different aspects of food policy, um, helping to respond to government consultations, say things like um, the obesity strategy, the natural food strategy that's just come out, um, and then the individual responses on say food labeling or um, the advertising of HFSS foods for nine o'clock, those sort of restrictions on advertising. Sorry. Um, and then we've also, or I've also worked on things like policy reports. So we've got one that's been really popular, but is now out of date, which is portion distortion report, where we focused on the change in portion size of products being sold in our shops. So helping to sort of develop a proposal for that and then also help with some of the research for it. Um, and then there's 
fundraising, which is obviously a large part of what we do. Um, so I work closely with the corporate partnerships teams to try and, um, from a new business point of view, whether a proposition is, is suitable for the BHF or not. Um, if the product is appropriate, what is it you know that they're wanting to do with us and whether that is appropriate. Um, and then in terms of the account management, once we have a partner helping to sort of fulfill our promises, um, they might want to write a piece for their website to um, promote the partnership and just making sure that that's accurate. Or uh, we've got recipes that we do sort of shared recipes, things like that with them. Um, and Tracy, the other dietitian, would work with the event side. So she does um, things like working with the heart runners and providing information online for all of the amazing people who run for us, cycle for us, do create long walks for us, that kind of thing. And then we also act as spokespeople for the organisation. So I've that can be so we we have a rotor of basically taking any press requests for the day. So. Um, there would be reactive press requests. So things might come in. Actually, something came in this morning. There's a paper coming out tomorrow and they wanted a comment from the BHF. So I have to read the paper, decide what, what we want to say about it. And then our news desk team work that up into a, a sort of press-worthy comment and then um, send that out. Um, we might get a call um, about a programme that they're wanting to produce in, say, three, six months time of research and might ring. You might just have a chat about a particular topic um, or they might want to book you in to actually appear on it. Um, if a paper that's come out, it gets a lot of press attention. You might have to do live news, whether that's radio, TV. Um, so that's quite a, yeah, it's quite a big, it, well, it can be quite a big part of the role. Um, it's often a bit kind of unexpected. Um, so you never know quite when it, when it's coming, but yeah, so we do that quite regularly um, as well. And then I also have a line management responsibility. So um, as well as managing the other dietitian, I have a team of nurses that I would also um, line manage. And those nurses are senior cardiac nurses who are very experienced in all aspects of uh, nursing, uh, people with heart and circulatory conditions. Um, and they do a similar role to me, but from a nursing perspective, so making sure the medical content that we produce is accurate. I'm quite jealous of your job. It sounds fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds like you've merged at the clinical side, communication side, but also you still have that MDT approach working alongside other health professionals. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it, yeah, I don't know how you find a spare moment, to be honest with you. It is quite busy. I think you just get used to it, you know, it's just sort of, yeah. <laughs> there is a lot it's only when you start saying it yeah it's quite a lot but it's not all at the same time <laughs> no it sounds brilliant and your your role in with the heart matters magazine which i know you can access on the bhf website yes um being a writer myself i'm very keen to hear a bit more about how you go about deciding which articles to write about and do you tend to get patients involved you use experts how can you tell me more about how it works Yes, so we have, so there is a team that produces the Heart Matters magazine. So we've got an editor, Sarah Brealey, who um, has a journalism background. 
um, but she's been editing Heart Matters for a long time now. Um, and, uh, and yeah, sort of features editors, there's a digital content producer, um, there are sort of planners and that kind of thing. So a team of maybe five or six people all involved in producing the magazine. So um, it is quite a big task. Um, it's one of our sort of very well-loved resources. We know from our insights that people read it from cover to cover. So it is not that you're going to write something and then no one's going to read it. We know that you know it all gets absorbed. So that's quite rewarding in itself. Um, we have brainstorming meetings where we try and come up with ideas for features. And that can be down to what people are calling us about on the helpline, uh, emails that we've had come in. We have a patient panel that we ask as well, like what they're interested in, or we might say, if we've got two articles, you know, options, we might say some, which would you prefer? Um, yeah, we also go out to the rest of the organization, see what ideas people have. We look at what's in the news. Uh, we look at if there's any new guidance or documents coming up that would be relevant to people with heart and circulatory disease. So it's sort of quite a broad, a uh, range of places that we go to for information. Um, I suppose also, yeah, the seasonal things, you know, Christmas, Easter, it depends when the magazine comes out. Um, I suppose we normally do in sort of the new year, sort of, yeah, new year, new year kind of um, side of things. So yeah, it, 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 it's, it's a really like, fun process at the beginning and then you decide what you're gonna have to write about. And then the hard work starts because you've got to actually write about the thing that you have an idea about. But yeah, it's nice. It's a very sort of creative process, I suppose, and that I really enjoy. Yeah, wonderful seeing it all come together. Is that a patient-facing magazine or is it for, for anybody, including health professionals? Yeah, Heart Matters is um, anybody can order it um, and it's free. Uh, you can also read it online. Uh, and I mean, it's it's predominantly it's written for people with heart and circulatory diseases. So that's the target audience. But we know that health professionals read it because they write to us and ask us about uh, articles or they comment on, on things that we've read. So, yeah, absolutely. And we know that things like um, doctor surgeries will order it and they'll leave it in the, the waiting room. So there is some statistic that I cannot remember, but it's, you know, each copy is read more than by more than one person. So, um, yeah, it's it has a wide readership. Yeah, absolutely. And that goes back to what you were saying earlier about how working at the BHF, you're able to influence um, a, a big audience of people as yeah. opposed to sort of one on one consultations. So um, I want to ask you about a myth that I've seen floating <sighs> on the Internet, which you're probably very familiar with. And it's about the, the BHF diet of frankfurters and ice cream. Is that really true? Is that, is that surely not the BHF's approach to heart health? Tell me no. more. <laughs> so in short, no, this is not a BHF diet. Um, it's, it's really odd. We don't know where it's come from. There's actually, um, we've, we've produced a, a, quite a long time ago, a short video actually debunking this myth because it, it doesn't, it hasn't been around, you know, hasn't come up for a while, but we do get people sort of sporadically asking about it. And I think it must just suddenly pop up in people's feeds or somewhere, but it's, um, yeah, it's known as the heart foundation diet, the sacred heart diet. There's always a heart sort of associated, the heart surgery diet. 
and it's really awful diet I mean why you would want to follow it I don't know it's sort of celery frankfurters a scoop of ice cream and Ritz crackers and um in varying combinations uh yeah it's it's not recommended by us it's not the approach that we suggest people follow we're hoping it will go away someday but I remember being asked about it when I first uh graduated you know my first job running a clinic shortly after and being presented with this and just being like what is this so um it's been around for a long time I think it's it's probably not going anywhere but I, yeah if this this a good audience to so just say this has nothing to do with us um have a look at our website for what we actually say about about food and um preventing heart and circulatory diseases um, and it's definitely a much more balanced approach um, we talk about a whole diet approach now um, which you know it the Mediterranean diet is the diet that everyone would immediately think about but you know there's also things like you know, plant plant-based eating vegan diets Nordic diet you know it's it's about a dietary pattern I think rather than a, um, a prescriptive uh, diet that you only have to eat for three days as well I think Gosh. Well, <laughs> if there's one takeaway message from this episode, then it's that the BHF don't support the uh, Frankfurter and ice cream diet. <laughs> no, it's definitely no from us. Um, so, so I'm just curious to go back to some of the exciting projects that you've been involved in since you've been at the BHF. And I know you mentioned last time I spoke to you about um, traffic light front of pack labelling. Can you tell us a bit more on that update? Yes. Yeah, so um, I think... Uh, it's probably not the traditional sense of exciting because policy work takes a long time. Um, but we've had two policy wins uh, during my time at the BHF. And it's just immensely satisfying when you've worked, you know, only a small part, but part of a team that's working towards something. And then it finally comes to fruition. So we had the day, um, well, we had the adoption of the uh, front of pack traffic light or multiple traffic light um, food labelling by the government as a recommended scheme and then that was adopted by the major retailers in around 2012 and that was you know that was a brilliant day um, because um, that meant that you know that was then going to be the, the scheme that was used on most of the products that most of the people were buying so that gave us that consistency that's so important I think with food labelling. And then more recently, we've had an announcement that the government's pressing ahead with restrictions on um, HFSS foods advertising before the nine o'clock watershed. And, you know, that's, again, something that we've been working on since I started at the BHF. And it's just really not, you know, even down to the wire, you know, we're kind of doing things to you know, keep, keep the ante up and, and to sort of push it through. And it, it seems like that, that has come to fruition now and it's yeah those are really really good days I think when those things happen but you know how many years have I been to the BHF I think excitement is is maybe not the right word I think um the other things that I've done that I think are probably more traditionally exciting are um obviously the press days you know when you get out of the shower at half past seven and there's a call from news desk saying can you do an interview uh in 10 minutes time on this story and then that follows with a, a day of you know, basically a day spent doing TV interviews and radio interviews and so on. It's, it's quite stressful, but it's, um, it's really, again, rewarding to know that, you know, the, the audience that you are reaching 
is enormous and that you're working for an organization that um, is, is thought of as some, you know, a voice in, in those kinds of stories. And then the other thing I thought of that actually was, um, was really exciting. One of the other things I love are any kind of behind the scenes things. Um, and uh, we've worked on a few cookbooks. Two of them are sort of uh, summaries of, of our own recipes that we have online, but we also did one with one of our ambassadors, Pippa Middleton, and that was actually creating new recipes from scratch and analysing them and turning it into a, a book from start to finish and just having that insight into publishing and how you actually create a cookbook, how many recipes you need, all the proofreading, all, you know, it was fascinating. So I think that's probably the other thing that I would, I would think of as exciting. Gosh, that's a big name to be working with, Pippa Middleton. Yeah, right? yeah, so yeah, like, we're really lucky. Yeah. Yes, brilliant. So um, just on that note about sort of big policy changes and government announcements and public health, this week that we're recording the national food strategy has just been released and there's been a lot of talk about the obesity strategy recently so um what's the bhf's opinion on um, things like calories on menus for example and how are the bhf responding to um sort of increased awareness at the moment of weight bias and stigma can you tell mm. us a bit more about that yeah so i think um our overarching view is that we want the environment to change and we think that that's that's what needs to change to address the issue of obesity it's not about individuals just trying a bit harder having a bit more willpower and so anything that will help to support making that environment easier for people to live in um, whether that's providing more information about the food they're eating whether that's front of fat food labeling calorie labeling um, we know that, you know, from a calorie labelling point of view, we know that people are eating more food outside of the home, the portion's bigger, they won't necessarily know what's in it compared to what they would normally cook at home. So something that gives you more information is helpful. Things that will stimulate reformulation, like taxes or uh, levies. So we were in support of the, the levy on soft drinks. Um, and yeah, the National Food Strategy has um, suggested that we have a tax on salt and sugar at source. Um, if that stimulates reformulation, then that's a good thing because it will make the food that we're buying healthier for us. Um, so I think that's probably where we are. Things like, you know, it, but that I suppose the thing that we always want to say is that there isn't one thing that needs to happen to address, you know, there isn't one thing that can change and suddenly we'll, we won't be in an obesogenic environment anymore. We need lots and lots of things to change. So these <laughs> policy wins, we've had, had two wins, but it's kind of like, we need all of those things to happen plus some more things to happen. And it needs to happen over a, a long period of time for it to kind of actually show an impact, which one of the reasons is a difficult area. Um, I think when it comes to calorie labeling, uh, obviously we've got our point of view that I've just outlined, but we do know that there are other charities and health professionals and obviously and individuals as well who will have different views on that. Um, I think eating disorders is, is the sort of the, the most concerning area that we have to think about. Um, and it is difficult. We don't want to diminish the impact, but I suppose you also don't want to, um, we have to represent the views of our uh, the people that we're 
supporting. Um, and that's part of the consultation process is people put their views forward and then they all get heard and then the sort of a decision is made. And if there is a way of adjusting it to make it better so that it suits more people, then that, that can only be a good thing. And that's the process working correctly, I think. Um, in terms of weight bias and stigma, um, it's definitely something that is um, coming to, well, it has come to the forefront in the last couple of years. Um, it's not to say it wasn't there before then, it's just people are talking about it now. Um, we are members, we're founding members of the Obesity Health Alliance, which is a coalition of over 40 organisations, and we work together to reduce obesity by influencing government policy. And the OHA has produced a position paper on weight stigma, which is available on its website. So if anybody wants to have a look at it, they can. It's got some guiding principles that we try and work with in the work that we do. And they're really more at the moment about the framing of the issue, the language that we use. And um, we're working to try and make sure that we are, um, can be as helpful as possible, I suppose, in that space. Um, the OHA is also engaging with people who have lived experience of obesity so that that, that perspective can be brought into our work as well. Um, and I suppose the other thing is just to, to mention that um, we hear so much about obesity and I think um, it is often sort of, you know, the thing people think of when they think of uh, heart disease and preventing heart and circulatory diseases, but it's not the only risk factor. And I think, you know, we need to recognise that it doesn't matter what weight you are, there are still changes that you can make um, to make your diet healthier um, and to improve your health in general. So, um, yeah, we don't necessarily only talk about obesity and, um, and we definitely want to address all of the risk factors, not just one potential risk factor. That was really interesting. Thank you very much for, for covering that. Um, so what, what's the benefit, do you think, of having a dietitian working in the sector when we've got all these exciting developments and changes going on at public health and government levels? What skills do you think a dietitian brings to a charity such as the BHF? I mean, I think, um, as we know, dietitians are <laughs> the only nutrition professionals registered with the Healthcare Professions Council and that registration is is really important. I think um, I'm working with other health professionals within the organisation I work for and it means they understand the kind of the role that I have and that I am being regulated so I'm not just kind of saying what I want to. Um, I would also though want to recognise registered nutritionists in this field because I work with some you know in other organisations and they do excellent excellent work as well. Um, I think where a dietitian in the organisation I'm in being a dietitian is helpful because I have that experience of having worked with patients in a hospital which is often the experience of the people that we're working with um, and it's about being able to access the guidelines understanding what they mean the research translating that for a lay audience as well and being able to communicate that clearly and sort of having a bit bit more of an understanding of what they might be worried about or thinking about um, to sort of get the right direction. Um, and I feel really strongly that it's important that, you know, whether you're a nutritionist or a dietitian, 
that you are a registered professional because I think we really need to make sure that the information that's going out, particularly from sources like medical charities that are so trusted, is accurate and that it's consistent as well because there's so much confusion um, so many different messages going out to people that um, yeah, we need to make sure that it, it's credible. And if there are any dietitians listening who are interested in transitioning perhaps from a more traditional NHS setting, for example, into the charitable sector, do you have any advice on how they can go about doing that? Any top tips? Um, I would say... Um, Think about what kind of charity you want to work for. So there'll be a big difference, I think, between working for a large charity like the BHF compared to uh, a smaller charity that might be in a more kind of hand-to-mouth position in terms of funding. Um, think about um, the kind of work that you want to do, I suppose. Um, it's a desk-based job. So if you're used to being much more kind of... Um, you know, talking to patients and being here, there and everywhere, it's, it might be a bit of a surprise. You know, it's a whole range of different things that I work on, but, you know, we've been working at home since March 2020 and I've been able to do my job from home. So it's not that I go out and about very much. Um, I think in terms of experience um, in not all charities, but I think be prepared that you might be the only dietitian in the organisation. And so I think you need to have enough experience and a breadth of knowledge that means that you're able to, to do that role. It's, it's quite a responsibility. Um, and things like, yeah, acting as a spokesperson. You know, people are looking to you as an expert source of advice, so make sure you feel comfortable being that and have the experience to allow you to do that. Um, and um, yeah, I think the other thing is the work, you'll be working with um, people that aren't medically trained. So they will have huge skill sets that are completely different to yours. So that takes a bit of adapting to you. I think when you work in the NHS, everyone sort of seems to have some kind of health background, even if they're not a medical, sort of medically trained. So um, that can take a bit of getting used to. Um, my transition from I went hospital public health um, BHF was a more sort of natural progression but some of our nurses will go straight from working the wards into um, the BHF and I think it is a bit strange to begin with but um but yeah I mean they all manage very well with that um I think the thing that I perhaps uh noticed the most is not having a dietetic team around me and I'd say don't underestimate the support that your your team gives you you know just a bit of moral support but also being able to ask questions and there's somebody else who would kind of reinforce the answer or, or help you with that um, but that said you can also build your own network so I've got to know through some of the work that I've done dietitians at Diabetes UK and the nutrition people at um, Cancer Research um, and it's always really nice. It is quite a niche position. So there's not many of us around. So there's not many dietitians generally, I think, you know, in proportion to other professions. But um, actually in the work that we do, it's even smaller. So it's, it's nice to make contact with other people who have the similar experience to you. 
Absolutely. Brilliant. Thank you for sharing your top tips. And my final question to you is, do you get involved in any student dietetic training at all at the BHF? Yes. And we're so delighted. We had um, our first student dietitian back in June, who um, she was the first one since covid started um so it was a real kind of milestone to be getting back to normal in some ways um uh it was a remote um, placement um but it, yeah it went really well so yeah we take um students from king's i don't know if i can say that but yeah king's students twice a year um so one in the summer and one in january and yeah we love having students they bring a fresh perspective on things and they um, can keep us up to date and um, yeah always kind of they can do those bits of work that are really kind of helpful for us but don't necessarily we don't necessarily have time to do them so yeah we really enjoy having them in the team and hopefully they enjoy sort of seeing a different side of work as well. Yeah, maybe one of them will follow suit and end up coming back to BHF when they've qualified. You never know. Maybe, yeah, we've had some great students. So, yeah, I know. So that brings us to our quick fire question round, um, Victoria. So my first question to you is, what would you say is your greatest achievement, either professionally or personally, during your career? I think, um, personally, um, it's it's studying while working full-time, that master's and the postgraduate. Every time I do it, I say I'm never doing it again. Um, and then, you know, you do it again. But um, it, it's so hard to do. So, yeah, actually doing it and doing well in those yeah, sort of academic bits of work is really rewarding once, once it's finished. Um, so I think those are probably my biggest achievements. Yeah, um, I think that's no mean feat. Yeah, no, hats off to think. anyone who's doing it now, yeah. <laughs> Uh, second question, what's your favourite recipe that you've developed or an article that you've written perhaps for the BHF? Um, I think, um, oh. Put you on the spot there, haven't yeah, I? Yeah, <laughs> actually. Um, I was trying to think if there's an article. I think uh, one of our favourite recipes is... Um, there's a, a chicken tray bake that's really popular. Um, so that's quite a good kind of everyday recipe. Um, although during the pandemic, our most popular recipe was a baked egg custard. And that is, we don't know why. Is it just, you know, comfort food. comfort food? Yeah. 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 Is it convalescent food? I don't know. But um, yeah, suddenly that that was really popular. Perhaps people have been making meringues and they've got a whole load of egg yolks to use up. I don't know. How interesting. Yeah, I guess it depends on the yeah. time of year. So mm. I don't know. Um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think those are probably the best ones. I mean, I I enjoy the, in Heartfelt, the books that we did with Pippa Middleton. Um, there's just some really nice recipes in there as well. So I actually I have a copy and I do actually use it. So I would say that there's some... Uh, rainbow steak fajita recipe that's really nice um there's also a, a carrot cake recipe that's very old on our website but that is also really nice it's made with rapeseed oil instead of butter and you know it's got incorporating all of the kind of healthy eating um adaptions for baking so um yeah and it's quite easy to do so yeah that's another good one gosh we'll be doing a bhf british bake-off before we know it won't we? 
or maybe not depends on the, the <laughs> calories sure and... get through sign off. <laughs> <laughs> um so finally being the dietitian cafe what would be your last meal if you were cast off to a <laughs> desert island my brother-in-law said oh dietitian's cafe that's definitely not a greasy spoon <laughs> um i think uh my desert island meal so I suppose for me, I think food is all about who you eat it with. So I'm going to go a bit left field. I think it's um, it's been a hard year when we've not had those kind of celebration meals and seeing everyone. And I recently had all my family sort of got together for the first time since 2019. So I think I would recreate that meal. And um, we had uh, Mary Berry's. Mediterranean vegetable salmon en croute and that was followed by a blackberry and apple pie so oh how lovely to have everyone back together again sounds wonderful well I've really enjoyed my conversation with you today Victoria thank you so much for finding the time to join us a huge happy birthday to the BHF thank you yes and um, thanks for everybody who's tuned in our next episode of Dietitian Cafe will be coming very soon